0: Imagine if we could determine the error in a human memory or identify a marker of guilt in a defendant. What about excusing a criminal from legal punishment because their brain says they were a victim of internal struggle? Is free will a myth? These are just a few of the fascinating questions we can ponder when we think of how neuroscience can be applied to the courtroom hello everyone and welcome to another episode of think twice it's me again for those who don't know me my name is ev and i am your host for the season of think twice i'm a phd student in neurosciences at queen's university and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in central nervous system disorders.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Elena, also a PhD student in neuroscience at Queen's, and my research focuses on exploring eating behavior and circadian dysfunction and mood disorders, as well as novel tools for assessment and treatment.
0: Along with some other amazing grad students, we've put together a podcast series as part of an outreach program with the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. The podcast is entirely student-run and researched. We'll be tackling a a variety of topics relating to cutting-edge research or controversies in the field of neuroscience. Our goal is to take you past the headlines and make you think twice about mainstream media topics relating to the brain and to human behavior. In this episode, we'll be looking into the field of neurolaw. law. To me, neurolaw law is a combination of neuroscience and law, two things I'm personally a big fan of as a neuroscientist and as just an individual who likes to live in a safe society. But apparently there's much more to it than my pretty basic Understanding. Elena sat down with, or I guess, he met with expert Dr. Jennifer Chandler to discuss the subject. Dr. Chandler is a professor in law and cross-appointed to the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa.
1: Great. So, hello, Jennifer, and Hi. welcome to Think Twice podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this call. Like I said before we started recording, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I think your field of work is super fascinating, and I can't wait to dive in. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we get into the sort of the good stuff, could you just say a bit about sort of what you do and how you got into this field of study? Sure thing. Yeah, I'm a
2: professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. I'm also cross-appointed to the Faculty of Medicine. So I'm able to do a lot of research and also, I guess, to some extent, teaching at the intersection of medicine and the law. So I teach a course in mental health law, for example. And in that course, I also include neuroethics topics that come up as well. And as far as how I got into this field, if I go way back <laughs> a bunch <laughs> of decades at this point, I do have a background in science. I did biochemistry and undergraduate studies and have a couple of scientific publications to my name from those days and I've had a really long interest in consciousness and the brain as well and had intended at that time to go into medicine and sort of medical sciences research. and so fast forward I somehow find myself in law school and that continuing interest in the science and the technologies continues. And so I did my graduate studies in law, in fact, in issues related to the regulation of technology and the challenges of evolving technologies for law and regulation. And this was in the the era of the internet bubble, the, the internet mm-hmm. and e-commerce were big. So I was thinking about things like information and communication technologies at that time. But I started teaching and quickly came back to my interest in medical sciences, and especially Especially the brain and human behavior and I guess that's sort of how I got to where I am now and I do a lot of my work looking at the neurosciences and also evolving neurotechnologies and how those are regulated and what kinds of interesting challenges they might pose for us at the societal level and legally.
1: Like Dr. Chandler mentioned, the interest in consciousness and just how the brain works is a commonly shared interest among very different fields. And the intersection between neuroscience and law is absolutely fascinating and raises so many unique controversies and questions.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's so much interest in what is ethical and what is legal in the field of biomedical research in general, and I guess in neuroscience even more specifically. There's been so many instances where neuroscience has been used as a tool in court, but most people, including myself up until now, don't know much about how all that actually works and why the standards of scientific evidence to researchers and to lawyers really aren't the same. But before we get into that, what exactly is neurolaw? law?
1: Well, from what I've gathered, it's sort of like a merging of the use of neuroscience and the practice of law, based on the idea that our behaviors are a result of our brains. The use of neuroscience in law is rapidly increasing too. For example, a 2015 study by Deborah Deneau identified 800 cases involving neuroscience over a 20-year period, with a distinct increase year after year. Another study in 2016 by Nita Farahani analyzed cases between 2005 and 2015 and found over 2,800 legal opinions where criminal defendants used neuroscience in the U.S. alone. Anything from medical records to brain scans were used as part of the defense. So it seems like insights from neuroscience could be really useful for informing legal decisions, but neural law can also go the other way, so applying law to neuroscience. Here's what Dr. Chandler said in a more legit definition with some reference reference to the history of neural law.
2: The first known use of a term neurolaw law was back in 1990s, where there was some discussion about the use of brain imaging and brain data in the context of personal injury litigation. So when someone gets injured, there's a discussion of whether or not you can use images to make or defend claims for compensation and related to those brain injuries. So a pretty narrow use really of neurolaw. law, but it was basically discussing the kinds of expertise and procedures you might use in that context to bring that evidence into court. Now, actually, if we think that was the start of neuro law, that is probably wrong, because if you look back in the history of law and also of law adjacent domains like criminology, we have a much, much older and longer interest in the brain. So if we look back in like early criminology, Lombrosian criminology was very interested in the brain and sort of looked at behavior in terms of sort of bumps and shapes of, of the skull and different parts of the body. And so this was kind of a biological some might say, (laughs) pseudoscientific approach to trying to understand human behavior. But we even see cases in the 20th century of phrenology being referenced in court cases. Now, it never really hit the big time. It's pretty marginal in court cases.
0: Hey, guys, just stepping in here to make sure we're all on the same page about some of these words we're using. To start, Lombrosian criminology was invented by Cesare Lombroso in the 1800s. His theory basically says that someone's criminal mind is inherited and can be identified by physical features. So basically, if you look like a criminal, you must be a criminal. Here at Think Twice, we don't encourage you to judge a book by its cover. Phrenology, on the other hand, is a pseudoscience that involves physically feeling someone's head to determine their mental state. So basically, it's the idea that someone's personality and intelligence is related to the shape of their skull. But... This has been debunked by modern science. Back to Dr. Chandler.
2: But you can sort of see this continuing interest in can we somehow figure out things about human behavior and mental states from objective scientific or pseudoscientific in this case, measurements and data. And before we hear this first word, neuro law, we already have legislation, i.e. statutes enacted by governments regulating for psychosurgery, as it's often called in the legislation. And this is a reflection of concern over the century prefrontal lobotomy in North America but we have those laws proliferating around the world, even with, you know, the last one I saw enacted was in 2017. So there continues to be this interest in regulating these particular types of brain interventions. We can talk more about that later, but think Mm. about how strange it is. We have a specific law governing this type of brain intervention, but we don't have a law on tumor resection for brain surgery. For example, why, what is it about this well, we can answer that question later. So all this to say that before we use the term neural law, the law was engaging in various ways with the brain, either to try to explain human behavior, to predict human behavior, and also starting to worry about interventions in the brain and enacting particular laws to govern that. So with this idea of neural law, it started to, you know, it was mentioned as a term sporadically and, and not very frequently in 1990s, and, but it started. To pop into much greater usage, I'd say in the last ten years ish, more or less, and it was part of this like proliferation of neuro words. Like you probably saw neuroaesthetics and neuromarketing and neuroeconomics mm. and neuro. Basically, everyone was fascinated with what the brain sciences could say about their own particular domain of human behavior or experience, and so I think neurolog. Sort of emerged along with all of that. And if we turn to for a moment away from history and look at, well, how might we understand what is neuro law? I like to think about it organized in a way that borrows from the organization of neuroethics, which is we look at two directions of influence. We ask, what does the law say about neuroscience? Like, how does the law regulate neuroscience and neurotechnology? So it's a direction of the law looking at and influencing neuroscience. But then we turn around and we look the other direction. We say, how do neurosciences themselves influence law? And so both of those, they're quite different, but they're both, I think, part of a complete evaluation of the interaction of the two fields. You might also graft onto it uh, some sort of, Other additional sort of meta questions, I guess, about, you know, legal ethics, like what is the role of the defense lawyer? What are the ethics of the defense lawyer in terms of using neuroscience in a defense, in a criminal defense or not? When should it be used? When should it not? When is it ethical and appropriate to use it? So those are sort of meta level questions I think about. That are internal to the law itself when thinking about neuroscience
0: something dr chandler said really stuck with me she's right that there's a strong relationship between the law and our brain and that's just something that doesn't really exist for other organs maybe i'm getting a little philosophical here and maybe i'm biased because i study the brain myself but there's just something about the brain the way it quite literally holds your life experience in whole and there's a bunch of theories about that that we won't get into today. But that just makes the brain so special and sets it apart from other organs from a biological, psychological, and a legal standpoint. There's something special about the way our whole body is directed by this one organ and just makes sense that we're trying to tie it or connect it to abstract concepts like guilt and morality to this governing entity. When you think about it, neuroscience really ties together a bunch of fields like biochemistry, philosophy, law, psychology, and even physics, just to name a few. But anyways, that was my bit of philosophy for today.
1: Very philosophical of you. But yeah, I agree. The brain is the source of everything we experience in this world. So no wonder the field of neuroscience is finding its way into all these other fields. I think it's especially interesting how that relationship is bidirectional with law. So law interacts with neuroscience and neuroscience interacts with law, bringing a lot of ethical considerations into play on each side of this, which we'll talk about a bit later. I also asked Dr. Chandler a bit more about when this two-way relationship between neuroscience and law really began to bloom. I also wonder sort of with the emergence of like neuroimaging techniques, did that sort of like explode the use of neuroscience in the courtroom? And I know that that's a big part of it. And that sort of happened like in the 90s, right? So do you think that neuro law sort of increased a lot during that time or is sort of like the interest in neuro law as we start to sort of get like the ability to look at the brain sort of more closely with these methods? I think that's absolutely
2: the case. That's a great observation. And I think that that is certainly an explanation of why it comes to be discussed more in the law. It's sort of the emergence of new techniques of looking at the brain, as you say, with imaging, but there's also the emergence of other techniques of intervening on the brain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's focused ultrasound or different kinds of stimulation to create sort of temporary perturbations in brain function. So you can start to get at not just what's the brain look like when it's acting, but also what happens if we interrupt something or change something and then observe the effects. So there's all these different techniques developing that allow us to do a lot more to understand the brain than we had in the past. So you don't have to just wait for a lesion to appear to try to see what its effect is. You can start to ethically do more experimentation on people And there's also the emergence of a computing power and allowing us to look at huge data sets. There's the development of a whole range of different sort of of technologies for trying to, I'm thinking brain-computer interfaces, trying to collect and interpret different like neural activity for a whole range of readout purposes as well as write-in purposes of brain stimulation. So all of this together, the greater power that science has to do stuff is going to generate more insights and more excitement. And I think While this is super great, one always has to be careful to avoid hype. I think that sometimes we get carried away with the possibility and think that it's going to be easier, faster than it is actually going to be to get to some of these applications, but also maybe have a tendency in the enthusiasm to jump and use something before it really is mature and proven, especially when it comes to trying to find solutions for really difficult problems where we might not have any other great alternative. The temptation to move quick is very strong.
0: Yeah, I think it's great that we discuss the need to slow things down and to avoid overhyping research findings before we understand enough about them. Yeah, research moves really slowly. Yeah, and honestly, I think it's really necessary that it does. We want to avoid using things and realizing afterwards that they cause more harm than good. And that's as much in biotechnology as it is in any kind of biomedical research. If you want to dive back into our Alzheimer's episode after this one, of course. That's just one good reason why we want research to move slowly. So we we can verify that the findings are actually legit.
1: For sure. Truly rigorous research takes time and forms the basis for future work, so it's so important to get it right. Definitely check out our latest episode if you want to know more about how this can go very wrong.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing. If we're applying these findings in a clinical setting, or in this case, in a legal setting, the implications of those findings really expand on a whole new spectrum. In a clinical setting, there's obviously clinical trials that everything goes through, and it goes through various phases to study efficiency and safety. But in the legal context, is there anything like that? How would you even test that? I mean, someone could be convicted and be sentenced to a life behind bars in part based on scientific evidence. You really want to make sure that it's beyond accurate. And if you want to get really deep into it, just look at the statistical tests that we use in science. Science isn't facts. It's a bunch of probabilities based on observations. But there's always a margin of error that we have to acknowledge. And that's partly why it takes so long to translate fundamental findings to actual clinical outcomes.
1: That's for sure, but I also think the use of scientific evidence, even if it's not 100% sure, can still benefit the justice system a lot. It can be used as just another clue towards determining the truth of a situation. But of course, some people disagree, which creates a lot of controversies in the field. For example, one pretty famous case I was reading about involved the use of functional magnetic resonance imaging, which, for those of you who don't know, involves scanning the brain to look at changes in blood oxygenation that occurs and using these changes to infer brain activity. This is based on the idea that active regions in your brain consume more oxygen from blood, and therefore more blood flows there to meet this demand. But back to the case, a man named Brian Dugan Adar was accused of murdering his wife, and during the trial, the prosecution presented fMRI evidence but why would they do this? Well, they were trying to show that he was being deceptive with evidence. The fMRI test involved asking Adair a series of questions while he was in the scanner, including questions about his wife and his whereabouts on the night of the murder. The researchers analyzed Adair's brain activity patterns during these questions and compared them to the brain activity patterns observed in control subjects who were asked to perform similar tasks. So the results of the fMRI test were presented in court and the prosecution argued that Adair's brain activity patterns were consistent someone who was lying. The defense team objected to the use of the fMRI evidence, arguing that it's unreliable and prejudicial. But ultimately, the judge allowed the evidence to be presented, and Adair was found guilty of murder.
0: Yeah, and my understanding is that the scientific evidence can only play a partial role in court, but you wouldn't want to be determining if someone is guilty or not solely based on that scientific evidence, like it is the case for clinical outcomes. And I can't imagine that everyone loves the idea of bringing neuroscience into the courtroom.
1: I feel like law is a field with a lot of traditions and historically conditioned attitudes about how law should be studied, practiced, and applied, so I could definitely see this being something that makes it difficult for new methods to be incorporated. Let's hear what Dr. Chandler had to say about this. I guess just to provide some more context for our listeners and some more sort of insight into how neuroscience is applied to law, can you give like an example of like a type of law where we've used neuroscience and sort of also how is it even being accepted by people in law? It can be a really new thing to add into the justice system, especially as these methods are still being developed and refined. So how is neuroscience sort of being accepted and these techniques by people in the justice system? Basically, anywhere there's a brain, and anywhere there's human behavior,
2: the issues of mental health law are relevant. And I would say Mm -hmm. the same thing about the brain sciences, anywhere there's a brain, and anywhere there's a human being with a brain acting, the brain sciences are potentially relevant. Now, Mm There's going to be situations when they're more useful and more directly relevant than others. And so I think that's that's sort of more what you're asking a more useful question. So where most likely is it going to be most quickly taken up and have the greatest influence. And I think that the criminal law is a place where one frequently looks, I think. In the context of the regulation of medicine and the regulation of brain interventions, I think that's another area where I've actually seen some influence is in the context of understanding compulsive behaviors and figuring out the legal response to them. So that the way we understand addiction, for example, is influenced by sort of models and theories coming from the brain sciences, whether it's pathological gambling or other kinds of compulsive behaviors. In those cases, the lawyers will often refer to these addictive behaviors as a chronic relapsing brain disorder. And Mm -hmm. the reason they do that is quite clear, is if we hear that there is a biological brain basis to behaviors that are being condemned, then we are less likely to blame those people. Now, this is perhaps a bit of a misinterpretation of how to use that evidence, because it may be more difficult for people to avoid a compulsive behavior but not necessarily impossible and so we shouldn't conclude it's impossible just from the fact of having pointed to the brain's involvement. The brain's involved in everything, right? It's very easy to slide into thinking nobody's responsible for anything at all if the brain's involved. So anyway, back to the point I was trying to make, which is what's important about this example is it shows how we are using brain-based explanations of certain behaviors to try to make arguments about whether people should be responsible for those behaviors or not. And so it's that a relatively abstract, high level we're not necessarily talking about one individual but instead about this whole class of behaviors and whether we should blame people for them. And I think that's actually where we see some of the biggest effects of neuroscience so far is in shifting our concepts and how we respond to certain kinds of behaviors.
0: Something Dr. Chandler said is super interesting to me. The idea that we address addiction and compulsive behaviors differently in the courtroom now because of neuroscience research is absolutely amazing. Research that is done in labs like the one I work in and the one Elena works in and maybe the one our listeners work in. That research is really shifting the way that people think. And in this case, it's shifting the idea of where the blame lies in some of these situations. And that is a huge deal when it comes down to giving someone a sentence that is appropriate for them and for their crimes.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think at the end there, she was sort of hinting at the debate about free will. So basically how neuroscience research challenges the idea that individuals have complete control over their actions. And it could provide some evidence that our behavior is influenced by many factors outside of our control, including disorders of the brain. So should people be really held accountable when they are the victim of a brain disorder?
0: Yeah, it's definitely a big question to be tackling. And even though this is a problem that is faced in the courtroom, that's also a very real question in everyday life. So do you have different expectations of people's behavior or of their performance in their work or in their sports or anything, really, if you know that they have some kind of brain disorder? And if the answer to that question is yes, does that change when you take it to a legal setting?
1: Right. And this has huge implications for the legal system, which relies on the assumption that people are responsible for their actions and should be held accountable for their behavior. I imagine things would start to get messy when we draw a line between what is a result of some factor influencing your brain versus what is a result of your own choice, which actually also comes from the brain. So at what point do we separate brain activity from you?
0: Okay, so for the bigger picture here, is neuroscience really making law rethink its approach to criminal responsibility?
1: Well, it's possible. For example, if someone has a neurodegenerative disorder like Alzheimer's disease, should they still be held accountable if their disorder corrupts their brain so much that they can't tell right from wrong? I'm super interested in this sort of philosophical debate. So of course I had to ask Dr. Chandler about this. Look at us just being philosophers today. For example, young children of a certain age are not usually criminally responsible for their actions, right? Due to their sort of Mm -hmm. premature nature of their brain. So is there a similar sort of consideration for people that deal with intellectual disabilities that also impair their ability to sort of understand or have the capacity to understand right from wrong? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, so this is a really complex question. So let's start with intellectual disability and youth. So it's true, especially with more adolescents in the US, for example, we've seen quite a lot of cases where brain science showing sort of the relatively late maturation of the human brain is being used to argue against certain kinds of criminal penalties, whether it's death penalty or whatever, in the US, to show that this should not be applied because we're talking about people with brain immaturity or immature brains. And it's kind of striking to me, like uh, it's not as if we need neuroscience to tell us that adolescents have immature brains. Like we've all been one. We've all (laughs) we've all done things that we later shake our heads at. So it's a matter of cultural experience and personal experience that it takes a while for the brain to like become fully adult. But nonetheless, again, this brain evidence is brought to bear and sort of reinforces those kinds of arguments with intellectual disability. I think that again, it's well known that there's a kind of diminished capacity and diminished responsibility when intellectual disability is present. But we don't really have super good biomarkers for what Mm. does a brain look like in that context, to my knowledge at any rate. So I haven't seen the neuroscience being used in that way. Now, one area in Canadian criminal law where I can think that it might be quite useful if it were possible to find these kinds of biomarkers would be in the
0: diagnosis of FASD. Hey, it's me again. Let's touch up on what FASD is real quick. FASD stands for Fetal Alcohol Syndrome Disorders, and it basically represents all the health conditions that occur in people who are exposed to alcohol before birth. These conditions vary quite a bit and include ADHD, intellectual disability, language delays, poor reasoning skills, and a bunch of issues with organs like the kidneys, the heart, the bones, etc., etc., etc. Anyways, back to Dr. Chandler.
2: So presently, I mean, in some sort of more severe, well, in some cases of FASD, you will get sort of objective signs that can be seen that someone has developmental exposure to alcohol that's had an effect. But there's probably a lot of people where those signs are not present, and yet those are still affect their cognition and their behavior. And this is really important in the criminal justice system in properly determining what is the right response, because there is a diminished responsibility if someone has an intellectual disability of some type. Um, So if we were able to actually find a way to diagnose FASD better and more efficiently, that would probably be a good thing. At the moment, my understanding is that it is sort of fairly lengthy interviews and neuropsychological testing and things like that that's quite time-consuming. And when you have something that's time-consuming, it becomes expensive, and therefore its use is sort of limited. And there will be people who fall between the cracks who are not diagnosed and where mm. that's not taken into consideration. So that's a way in which, you know, I think about developmental conditions and where neuroscience could help if we were starting to develop those kinds of tests. But with respect to that point, though, I did want to mention one sort of interesting, it's being called the double edged sword of neuroscientific evidence in criminal law, because criminal laws about blame and about trying to get a sentence that fits the degree of moral blameworthiness of someone's action. And so if they have diminished capacity, it tends to reduce the blame and then reduce the sentence. But criminal sentence is not just about moral blame. There's other things going on at the same time, including protection of the public. And so what we sometimes see is that you may reduce blame by pointing to brain-based evidence, but you might also increase the tendency of the decision maker to think, wow, okay, this person's dangerous. There's little we can do to fix a, quote, broken brain, to put it in a simplistic Mm -hmm. way. And therefore, this person is going to pose a risk going forward. And so increase the sentence because of a concern that public's not safe. Mm -hmm. So get this double-edged effect. And in my own research, I've come to the conclusion that looking at criminal cases to see how this evidence affects the sentencing, that it makes sense to try to get the sentence reduced by pointing to a brain-based explanation of the behavior for the less serious offenses. For the more serious offenses, you're likely to engage concern about public safety, and it won't really matter as much anymore about how blameworthy the person is. Mm, we okay. tend to skip over more into a prevent- future harm mode. So it's kind of a tricky, tricky point, but I think there's certainly room to continue to try to understand the conditions and to be able to diagnose them. I think what would be really important at the same time is not to lose sight of the extent to which brains are plastic, that it's not sort of, it's not always possible to fix absolutely everything, but we run the risk of telling people you didn't do it. It's your brain problem that is responsible it's kind of like a deflating, demotivating message to hear if Mm -hmm. you've run into a problem and people say, don't worry, it's not your fault. It's a brain issue. They themselves might interpret that in a way that's fatalistic. It's like, well, gosh, I can't do anything about it. And that's not a particularly good message either mm. to give people in the criminal justice system.
0: When Dr. Chandler started talking about intellectual disability, my ears perked up a little bit. I work in that field. And a lot of cases, like she said, you actually don't physically see the disorder. So when you think of a courtroom as a place where we search for truth, in at least some part, by assessing someone's credibility. And that's somewhere I imagine people who are intellectually disabled or have any kind of invisible disorder take a serious hit. And even in the understanding of the crimes themselves, if they were to commit a crime, you really have to take into consideration that their understanding of the crime and of its consequences can be much more limited than what you expect. And the issue with cases like intellectually disabled people accused of crimes is that in a lot of cases, they may not even have an official diagnosis. And that makes it so much harder. And for a lot of people, it seems obvious that if you have some type of disorder, no matter what it is, you want to know exactly what it is. But it isn't always that simple. For a lot of disorders, the diagnosis takes time and can be very costly. It's not always as straightforward as putting a q-tip up your nose and waiting for a couple minutes to see if one or two lines appear. Some diagnoses can take years and many people just go completely undiagnosed their entire lives. So if we're relying on a diagnosis to assess the portion of blame that can be attributed to someone, that's just a never-ending story.
1: That's so true and even though neuroscience is helping us characterize these diagnoses better, the research also takes time like we mentioned. We need to make sure people are being treated fairly in the courtroom and by the jury when dealing with any kind of disability that's beyond the individual's control.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, too, when we talked about the balance between blame and public safety. It seems obvious that for a severe crime, even though blame might only minimally be on the person committing it, public safety is going to play a much larger role in determining sentencing. But then, for a crime that may not be a severe the balance is kind of flipped the other way around. I wonder what the threshold is between the two. What is the limit where one takes over the other? And up to what point, I guess, is it possible to quote unquote, get away with a crime? And yes, I realize up until now we talked about intellectually disabled individuals, but there are many disorders that impact your brain. We all know stories of psychopaths and of sociopaths, so do we put them in the same box as intellectually disabled individuals? Sounds awful, no? Or are we weighing different disorders differently in the courtroom?
1: Yeah, that's a tough one because who's to say that they aren't as disabled as someone with intellectual disability? Maybe the disability just has more to do with empathy and moral intelligence in some way. Obviously, psychopaths can pose a risk to individuals in society and therefore should be handled differently. This is another topic that I was really excited to chat with Dr. Chandler about in the interview. Yeah, and it's hard to sort of separate your brain from you, right? Mm Because your brain, it is you. So um, that's super difficult. And I guess that sort of Another example of this could be, I guess, antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy. Mm -hmm. I've read a bit in the past, neuroimaging studies that sort of show that psychopaths lack the neural equipment for empathy. So they Mm -hmm. don't have the capacity to feel empathy. So that obviously leads to behaviors that are detrimental to others. Mm -hmm. So we obviously need to keep the public safe, but then it's also sort of not the person's fault, I guess, that their brain sort of Blocks this equipment. So it's sort of like balancing those two things, right? And I guess it'll improve the more we know about the brain and the more we can say, okay, we can develop an intervention for this or we can't. And ultimately keeping society safe, I guess, is the main priority.
2: Yeah. And the thing is, there's whole bunches of different ways to keep society safe. We yeah. don't have to keep society safe only by putting people in prison, which is very unpleasant kind of environment. So if we think back to, okay, let me back up a second here. So yeah, you're quite right. This line of research about psychopaths and The suggestion that they lack sort of the normal, shall we say, emotional circuitry that allows them to understand emotional reactions of others, to detect them and understand them, and also to feel those kinds of emotionally driven aversion to hurting other people. Mm. It's a useful signal to people on how to act in society if they get these kinds of things, stress them out or aversive. It's information that helps you as an organism to exist in society. So one could think of psychopaths in some sense as morally disabled because they lack an important component of the cognitive apparatus for behaving morally. Mm -hmm. If we think that moral behavior is not just part of rational processing of outcomes and causal relationships and weighing of pros and cons, but also some form of emotional understanding in a society of the significance of an act. And one could say, and there have been people who have argued that psychopaths are morally disabled and should be perhaps treated as morally. Incapable. Mm -hmm. And so notice there, there's a different thing being said there. We've moved from this person is bad to this person is ill or disabled. And we usually take a different approach there. We might, for example, Treat the person as sick and as in need of either isolation from the community, if really, really dangerous, and also treatment if possible. Mm-hmm. And so, if we look at the long standing defense of insanity in Canada, it's called the defense not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder. It was formerly not guilty by reason of insanity. But this is the approach we take to mental illness. So, if someone has a mental illness that greatly interferes with their ability to understand and appreciate their actions and to know that, they're wrong, we move away from criminalization and we move into a medical model where people are hospitalized in psychiatric facilities. So that's another approach. And if we were to say, well, psychopaths should be approached in that manner as morally disabled, what would that look like? Rather than sending them to prison, is there some other approach that is justifiable and, and better from an ethical perspective? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I'll give you a concrete example. We've have had a recent case in Canada where an argument of this sort of type was well wasn't really referencing psychopath but it's parallel Mm -hmm. so do you remember the toronto van attack it was a number of years ago where a man rented a van and this was notorious at the time and still because he claimed this was part of an incel rebellion and he was motivated by incel ideology and Mm -hmm. he rented a van and he drove down a sidewalk in toronto killing a bunch of people and badly injuring a number of others. So a year or so ago, we had the court case and the defense lawyer in this case, like there was, how are you going to defend that? It was admitted, this was done carefully planned. It was clearly understood. This was contrary to the law and everything. So there were not a lot of good defenses available. And so the defense lawyer attempted not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder. So the man in this case had a diagnosis of Asperger's autism spectrum disorder. Um, The argument was made that because of his condition, he had great difficulty in social cognition, and especially with empathizing, and simply did not understand the devastating impact his actions would have on the victims, their families, his family. And if one sort of looks at the interview, which is on the web somewhere, his police interview, or looks at the transcripts, one's struck by the tremendously detached, simply not processing the emotional consequences of his action. And so you can sort of see like he knew it was wrong, but did he really know it was wrong? Mm -hmm. Is the question that's being asked, is it enough to know the basics that society thinks is wrong and legally and morally without having access to the emotional quality? Mm -hmm. Um, So now the outcome in that case was that the judge said, well, it's possible in some cases, this argument would work. But in this case, he had enough understanding and enough knowledge and his impairment was not so severe. He may have been slower at understanding the deep moral wrongfulness, but he would get there and he had a lot of time to do it. And therefore, he didn't meet the threshold to not be held criminally responsible. And this reflects the fact that the threshold for not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder is quite high, has to have a severe incapacitating effect. Below that, You'll still be held responsible, although we might blame you less and it might affect the sentence, but you still will be convicted. So that's where we are after this case. But it is sort of an example of trying to make that argument about the role of empathy and the neurological apparatus required to empathize as having an important role in determining responsibility.
0: So that really goes back to what we were saying earlier, that there's this shift from morally bad to disabled or mentally ill. And that really does change the outcome of sentencing. Yes, there's a lot of pleats of mental illness, and they're definitely overrepresented in the movies, but the threshold is pretty high to not be recognized as criminally responsible. It's definitely a helpful tool to decide what will happen to the person who committed the crime, not everyone deserves to be in jail, and not everyone deserves to have unescorted temporary absences.
1: For sure, and I found one of her points especially interesting, and that was the concept of not being held criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder, and the fact that the threshold is quite high. But maybe the more we learn about disorders, the it'll lower the threshold. It definitely feels like moving from criminalization models to a medical model would be more humane. Like opposed to sending people to jail to be punished and socially isolated, compromising their future opportunities, we could have these people hospitalized in facilities where they can be treated more like patients. And hopefully, once we understand these disorders more, they could even be treated and released again. I imagine we're far off from that just yet, but it's an exciting possibility. This also leads to the interesting question about if it could be possible to identify biomarkers for criminal activity in some way for example if we already know some aspects of brain function that are specific to psychopaths maybe we can identify markers of other things like guilt lying etc i discussed this with dr chandler in part two of the episode
0: hope you guys like that cliffhanger we have to cut the episode short for today because we have so many things to talk about for just one episode but if you like part one you do not want to miss part two of this beautiful Neural Law episode, we'll be talking about biomarkers of guilt and using brain-machine interfaces. Yep, that's the one where your brain is connected to a computer. On that note, thank you for spending time with me today, Elena, and a special thank you to Dr. Chandler. I hope our listeners enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. If you like, think twice tell your friends about us. And if you'd like to participate in our special brain awareness episode, click on the link and fill out our quick survey. It only takes about five minutes and you can express all your thoughts about neuroscience and scientific communication on there. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice. Thank you to the outreach program at the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. See you next time.